chapter 17. We got about halfway through it. I think we finished up at verse 15, which is when Paul and Silas have been pushed out of Macedonia and Berea. So Paul's gone south to Athens, which is where we picked the story up. And what's been happening, obviously, is he's been traveling, started off in Syria, went up through Asia, which is modern Turkey, and then went over to Macedonia, which is the upper part of the Aegean archipelago. And now he's coming down the Aegean Peninsula to Athens. And what's been happening is, you remember the Council of Jerusalem wrote a letter to the believers in Antioch. And so when Paul and Silas take off on their missionary journey, they have got this letter with them. So as they're going through these towns, some of which they have previously planted churches in, they are going through with the letter from the Council of Jerusalem. And it was controversial when it was written. You had the party of the circumcision that was of the opinion that Gentiles had to be circumcised and be brought into following the law of Moses before they could be saved. The Council of Jerusalem said, well, God actually made that decision uh, by giving them the Holy Spirit, so we're not going to put anything more on them. And the most common understanding of what has been laid on the Gentiles by the Council of Jerusalem is standards of good behavior that allow you to come into the synagogue and hear the word of Moses because the synagogue is where the books are. So as they go north and they are preaching, A, the gospel that Yeshua is the Messiah, but B, they're also carrying this letter with them. So the party of the circumcision that was in Jerusalem and duking it out during the Council of Jerusalem, Jews with that attitude are scattered all over the Mediterranean. This is sort of normative Judaism, that, gee, if you want to come in and be a Jew and, and so forth, we've got a procedure to do that. Flip up your toga and we'll get you squared away here. And we've got the rules and so forth that you're expected to follow. And that's the normal way that you bring a proselyte into Judaism. So as Paul is going north, and he's got this letter where the Council of Jerusalem has decided all the stuff you know about bringing Gentiles into Judaism has been overturned by the direct action of God and the Holy Spirit. So your understanding has been trumped, if you will. God has accepted them. He's given them the Holy Spirit. They got the Holy Spirit just like we do. So the idea that there's some procedure that Judaism now has to bring them in is been trumped by God. That doesn't go over well. In addition to which, the idea that Yeshua is the Messiah doesn't go over well in some quarters. So as Paul is going back through these places where he's been before and he's going and establishing new churches, he's running into resistance from traditional Jews. And of course his practice is to start his time off in a new city by going to the synagogue. You know, the Jews first and then the rest of the world. And so he repeatedly gets beat up, thrown in jail, stoned, etc. And we've said this before, but it's worth repeating. 
the traditional Jews are looking at it from the position of Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy it says that if a prophet comes among you and his prophecies come true and he tells you to follow another god, then you don't listen to this guy even though he does have a legitimate supernatural connection. So Paul's got a legitimate supernatural connection. He lays hands on the sick, they recover, he is able to demonstrate that he's got the supernatural connection. But in the eyes of a traditional Jew, saying that Yeshua is teaching what we call Trinitarianism, which is that God and Yeshua and the Holy Spirit are the same, or the same being, that smacks awfully strongly of, okay, we've got a prophet who has got a legitimate spiritual connection and he is asking us to follow another God. That just naturally irritates him because the Torah says, don't do that. So as he's going north, the reason for his difficulties that he keeps having, I'm suggesting of the combination of the letter and the idea that Yeshua is the Son of God, the Messiah, and God himself. Those two things are not going to make him congenial to Jews. So, having been run out of all those places, he is now fetched up in Athens. And in Athens, he's going to meet a different problem. Now, let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll back up and talk about what his problem is in Athens. So I'm now down in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Yeshua and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So the Areopagus is a hill in Athens. It was a seat of government at that time. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, uh, two major strains of Greek philosophy around the time of Christ give or take a century on either side of Christ, Epicureanism and Stoicism were competing in very popular philosophies. Both of them say live a quiet and humble life, but Epicureanism says the highest good is to enjoy the things of the world. Very much like what you read in Ecclesiastes, where the greatest thing that God has given you is to enjoy your work, enjoy your family, enjoy the good things that God has provided. So in a sense, Ecclesiastes is almost Epicurean. Obviously not quite because it believes in God and some other things. Stoicism, on the other hand, says you're not supposed to pursue worldly good. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to endure what life hands you. So whatever life hands you, you just bear up under it and keep marching until your life is over, and this is as good as it gets. But these are the two philosophical schools that are asking 
Paul what's going on. Now, the other thing that we've talked about lots and lots of times is the New Testament is written in Greek. The people who wrote it were Hebrews, with the exception of Luke. So Hebrews have written in Greek about a Hebrew God. And it's hard to translate that. And when you then take something written in Greek with a Hebrew mindset and you give it to people who are schooled in Greek philosophy, you get all sorts of weird stuff. And the problem that much of the church has today is they approach this Hebrew Bible and this God who revealed himself to the Hebrew people from a Greek mindset. And the Greek mindset is, if I think about it hard enough, I'll be able to understand it. And the fact that I don't understand it is just the fact that I haven't thought about it hard enough yet. Or talk to people who have thought about it hard enough. Some strains of Greek philosophy do believe in gods, the Greek pantheon, which the Roman pantheon is the same, just new names. So you've got these people who really enjoy working with words. The difference between the Greek understanding of truth and the Hebrew understanding of truth is fundamental. The Greek understanding of truth is if you've got a set of words and you manipulate those words according to proven logical rules, which can be deduced, you will start with something and you will reach truth. The Hebrew way of thinking about truth is you observe something you see what its character is, and the example I've used is a man. Well, how do I know that Tim, for example, is a man? Well, I watch him for a while, and I see if he does the thing that a man does. And if he does the things that a man does, after observing him for a while, I can safely say he's a man. And of course, that becomes really tenuous today when people don't know what they are anymore. So. You've got this Greek mindset, and by the way, as I said before, Greek is a really good language if you want to build a bridge or you want to fly to the moon. It's a scientific language or a military language. It's really, really good at describing the things of the world. That's what it's designed to do. So if you've got engineering to perform or any of that kind of stuff, Greek's your language. It is not, however, so good at talking about things of the spirit. Hebrew is a better language for that. I am fluent in five or six different computer languages. And I choose the language that I use depending on what I need to accomplish. Because some languages are better for this and other languages are better for that. And so if you choose the wrong language, you can do something in it, but your work is much harder. Whereas if you grab the right language, doing the thing that you want to do that that language was designed to accomplish becomes very simple because the expression of that language lends itself to a certain type of problem. It's the same thing with Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew lends itself really well to talking about God. Greek lends itself really well to talking about the world. You can talk about God in Greek and you can talk about the world in Hebrew. It mostly works pretty well, but there are going to be subtle problems coming at the Bible with a Hebrew mindset. And that's, by the way, why the Hebrew roots movement has taken off after World War II, is because you have a lot of people who have grown up in the church that are saying, wait a minute, we're missing something. 
So they've tried to go back and put themselves into a Hebrew frame of mind as they read the scriptures, and that's where we are today in, in the Messianic movement. So as Paul is going in there and he's bringing something new that they haven't heard before, oh, wow, it's like a bunch of messianics when a new teacher comes through and, oh, we got to go see what this guy has to say. It's the same attitude. They drag him up to the area where you'll be able to talk. And now I'm down to verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, which is sort of what I just said. 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And that last one is from a Greek poem, Phanomenia, which I don't know. So what he is doing is he is standing there and making an assertion about metaphysics. He's saying, you've got this God, you've got an altar to him, just in case you missed one. That's sort of we're going to cover all our bases, and if there's one that, whose name we don't know, uh, we'll throw him up there too, just to make sure that none of the gods are insulted by our ignorance. The fact that we don't know all the gods, there may be gods that we're ignorant of, so we'll put this unknown god just to let, let the gods know that we are pious people, and we mean no disrespect with our own gods. Paul then just sort of steps in there and asserts that this God that I am preaching created everything, created all people, and put them there and had their being. Now, one of the things that we're going to see is Paul is going to make like one or two converts here, not whole cities full. And the reason for that is he's basically making an assertion without any proof. Any madman can walk up and say, I have a hot fudge Sunday. Well, that's very interesting. What evidence do you give us to prove that you're a hot fudge Sunday? Well, I just say I'm a hot fudge Sunday. So Paul is stepping up there and saying, this God that I preach is the only God. He's near you, and he made the whole world, and he made all the people, and he put them in place. Well, that's very interesting. What evidence do you have of that? And see, Paul doesn't give any evidence. He just makes the assertion. And he's dealing with people whose mindset is, We'll start with observations, and from there we'll start to reason, and with reason and observation, we will be able to discern everything. By the way, that's science today. So Paul here is standing up and saying, I am just asserting that this God exists, and you have this unknown God, 
that, that's out there. And I'm suggesting to you that the unknown God you're talking about is this God I'm preaching. Well, to somebody who is of a scientific mindset and doesn't believe in the supernatural, that's not persuasive. And especially it's not persuasive to someone who fancies himself a philosopher, whose worldview is, I will start with what I can observe, either with my senses or my senses extended, and then I will reason about the things that I observe, and from that I can discern all truth. And the fact that I haven't yet discerned all truth is because I just haven't reasoned about it enough, or I haven't observed finely enough. So we don't have any idea about diseases because we don't yet have a microscope. But once we get a microscope, we could figure that out. And so that's the scientific attitude. And what you have is the difference between science and revelation, where revelation says God steps into the world and reveals things to people that you cannot prove are true. And by the way, that's why Socrates got poisoned. Because Socrates kept asking questions until you got to the point where you couldn't prove something. And he says, how do you know that's true? And they finally said, well, screw this. We'll just poison the guy. He's a pain in the butt. Literally, that's what they said. Maybe not the butt part, but you understand what I'm saying. The point is, everybody knows things that cannot be proven. We all do. Now, some of it's from revelation. Some of it is just stuff you know. And that's okay. Whereas the scientific and philosophical mindset says, no, that just means you haven't thought about it enough or you haven't observed finely enough. The biblical mind says, well, no, that's not true. There are some things that you know that are not the result of observation and reason. They're the result of revelation. Anyway, at the end of the day, we're going to see he makes like two converts. Obviously, through a crowd, people were interested. So I'm all the way down to verse 29. Actually, let me back it up to verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And then that flies right in the face of what they want to do. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what he's saying is this unknown God who I am now revealing to you has been forbearing all this time because you're ignorant. But now I am telling you he is going to judge the world, and he's going to judge it by a man. And the assurance that that man provides that he is able to do what I have just said is the fact that God raised him from the dead. That's his argument. And again, you, you all perhaps might believe me, but if I were to walk into Whole Foods and say, I just saw this guy raised from the dead, and he says that he's going to come and judge the how many people would believe me? I didn't see it. So 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So he does get some converts there, but mostly it's just, well, 
come back and talk some more. And by the way, bring proof next time because we're going to examine you as to what you're saying. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Claudius was a Roman emperor, and he was a cripple. And his, maybe nephew, was Caligula. And Caligula was finally assassinated by the army because he was so crazy. And Claudius survived the purges because people didn't take him very seriously because he was a cripple. And it turned out that he was actually a pretty good emperor, very interested in law and so forth. But anyway, one of the things that they were having a problem with in Rome was what they called this guy Christus, who was causing trouble. And the trouble that was caused, you can read about in the book of Romans. Because in Rome, you have a mixed synagogue where you've got a combination of rabbinic Jews, proselytes, God-fearers, and messianics. That whole mix, they have the same problems that Paul is talking about as he goes on his missionary journeys. And the Romans didn't really care who you worshipped as long as you didn't cause trouble. And what's happening with Paul is he keeps causing trouble. And the trouble he's causing is that the regular Jews riot when he's in town and talking. And that disturbs the Romans. And so that gets him thrown out of various places. But anyway, the, the same problem exists in the synagogue in Rome. So the Romans solved that by running the Jews out. In other words, you guys can't keep peace in your own community. Fine. Go back to your own land. Uh, we don't need you here. That apparently is what happened there. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Yeshua. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, in the empire, there were sort of two kinds of religion. There were religions which were the religion of people of long standing. So the Jews fell under that umbrella. They'd been worshiping their God for a long time before the Romans came along. They were stable, 
everything was fine, so they just kept worshiping their God and we don't need to disturb anybody. There were also people who didn't worship any God and they were required to worship Caesar, but the worship of Caesar was a pro forma state thing and it was really regarded as a loyalty test. But the idea that religion was in fact the subject of law was well known within the empire. In other words, if your religion was not one of the recognized religions, then you could be in serious trouble. And so what they were saying about Paul is, this guy is coming through and he's teaching a religion that's not recognized, not one of your religions, not one of our religions, and he's causing trouble. And of course the thing the Romans care about is he's causing trouble, not really care much beyond that. So I'm not on verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of a question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, which is actually kind of bright. In other words, you guys have got a theological argument going here. I'm not qualified to get in the midst of your theological argument. You guys figure it out. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallo paid no attention to any of this. So Sosthenes is the ruler of the tribunal. He is a messianic Jew. All the congregation of the Jews goes before the Romans and said, this guy, Paul, is teaching heresy. And he's causing problems. I don't care. I mean, this is an internal synagogue matter. You deal with it. So the guy that they grab is Sosthenes, who is the president of the synagogue, who is also a messianic. And they figure, okay, we'll thump him and sort of discourage other people from following this guy, Paul. In other words, if we're going to thump the president of the synagogue for following this guy, Paul, how much more do you think we're going to thump you who have no real standing? I think that's what's going on. Verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, and at Sincrae, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. This is a Nazarite vow, and that's in Numbers chapter 6. So in Numbers chapter 6, a Nazarite vow is where someone takes a vow to dedicate himself to the works of God for a period of time. And according to the oral law, that minimum period is 30 days. It can be longer, but the minimum period is 30 days. And during that period of that vow, you abstain from wine and indeed raisins or anything that comes from a grape, and you let your hair grow long. You also don't come into contact with death. So if you're riding along on the bus and somebody dies and falls on your lap, you got to start over. So can't come into contact with death. You let your hair grow long and you abstain from wine or anything having to do with a grape. At the end of your vow, what you do is you cut your hair off and you take your hair to the temple with a lamb and your hair is burned up on the altar along with the sacrifice. So the fact that Paul cuts his hair because he has taken a vow indicates that it's a Nazarite vow and the period of his vow is over. 
So what Paul is going to do is he's going to cut his hair and he's going to put it in a baggie. And he's going to take the baggie to Jerusalem to offer it up along with a lamb. And that's what he's doing when he gets arrested in Jerusalem. Remember, he gets back to Jerusalem and the rulers of the Messianic synagogue there in Jerusalem said that, all right, people have been saying that you have been speaking against the law of Moses and you've been telling people not to circumcise their children. In order to prove that you follow Moses, we have a group of people who are ending their vows. You go with them, you pay for the lamb for the sacrifice, and you go up and take your hair out of the baggie and you burn your hair with their hair, and so then everybody will see that you follow Moses. On his way there, that's when we have the riot, where the Romans come in and break up the riot and grab Paul out of the midst of the mob. Paul then says, I'm a Roman citizen, and at that point he gets shipped off to Rome. So this business where it just sort of occasionally says, at Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, goes back to Numbers chapter 6, and will then reflect forward to when he finally gets to Jerusalem and causes that riot. That whole sequence of events starts right here. And by the way, later on, when he says, I'm going down to Jerusalem, everybody says, no, you don't want to do that because they're going to arrest you. Remember the guy prophesies and says, they'll tie you up and throw you in jail and so forth. I think one of the reasons Paul goes is he's still got this baggie of hair with him that he needs to clear his vow. And that involves a sacrifice and a bunch of other stuff. So he's sort of got an open thing there that he's got to take care of. It's interesting that he does not say, Jesus has done away with the law and I just need to keep my hair trimmed now. The idea that he takes the law of Moses very seriously and he intends to go do a sacrifice Paul, as I say, is the poster boy for New Testament grace. And he is very determined to follow the Torah properly. Verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Yeshua, though he knew only the baptism of John. Apollos is a believer, obviously. He does not have the Holy Spirit. He has simply been baptized according to the baptism of John for repentance. He is, however, a Torah scholar, and he is very competent to explain why Yeshua is the Messiah from the Torah without the aid of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I think God does is grabs people who have the secular qualifications is not the right word. In fact, that's kind of a bad word in Christianity. 
sort of the preacher's thing. God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. You've all heard that. Having said that, I think the reason he grabbed Paul is because Paul is a Torah scholar and he knows the scriptures and didn't have to be retaught the scriptures to teach Yeshua. I mean, what is this guy doing staying around someplace for a year and a half? It takes 20 minutes to explain the gospel, right? What he's doing from there is he is teaching Torah scriptures to Gentiles. Just like you all are sitting in here doing Bible study and you study the scriptures all the time and we teach scriptures here over and over and over again and every lesson is not Jesus saves. Wonderful lesson. Great lesson. But there's a whole lot of other scripture that you need to learn to understand why Jesus saves is true. And in order to understand and be able to defend your faith, you've got to understand the rest of it. Going back to Paul when he's standing in Athens, and he just asserts that this God that I worship is your unknown God, and he's the one that created everything. Well, gee, that's very interesting. What proof do you have of this? So the idea then that you take people through the scriptures and you teach them, and you teach them how to reason from scripture and so forth, that's the thing that's taking him a year and a half at these places where he hangs out, is teaching Bible. Verse 26, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah was Yeshua. So notwithstanding God qualifies the called, this guy is qualified to teach the scriptures. And so what he's doing is you've got a bunch of Gentile believers who presumably have the Holy Spirit and are enthusiastic and all that. You've got the Jews who also know the scriptures and they're going to their Isaiah 53 and said, this isn't talking about this guy Jesus, this is talking about the nation Israel. And you have these new Gentile believers that don't know nothing and they're easily confused. I mean, that's what happens in Galatia, you know, the Galatian church. So you have rabbinic Jews who do not believe in Yeshua, and you've got Gentile believers who are full of the Holy Spirit, and the Jews are saying, there's no word in the Bible that this guy exists. I mean, you're, you guys are sugar. You're just following something strange. So guys like Paul and Apollos are really valuable because they can go in, and they are at a scriptural level of understanding that at least matches the local rabbi and they are able from the same set of books to explain why Yeshua is the Messiah and refute the arguments of the rabbis who say for example Isaiah 53 is talking about Israel and it's not talking about Yeshua and he is able to, to refute that in the same arena if you will that the Jews are using. So chapter 19, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. 
And he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Yeshua. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The thing that's going on here is discipleship. You've got these new Gentiles. They don't know nothing about nothing except that they heard and believed and they have the Holy Spirit. So what they need to be is taught the scriptures. And that's what Paul and Apollos are extremely qualified to do. And I believe that's one of the reasons God picked those two people. Because he didn't have to start them from scratch learning the scriptures. And he didn't have to purge them of Greek mindset. They didn't grow up as Greeks, they grew up as Jews. They came up with a Hebrew mindset. So they were able then, once they knew who the Messiah was, just to step right off and be effective immediately. And so we'll pick up the sons of Sceva next time.